0: Good morning. morning. I appreciate the last line of the hymn we just sang. It says, I praise the God of grace. I trust his love and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy. My light. We often praise God for all that He has given us, and yet by far the most precious gift is Himself. Let's turn to Second Samuel Chapter Nine. Second Samuel Chapter 9. We'll pick up well Don left us a couple of weeks ago. If you remember he preached on the kindness of David, the kindness of David. And it's hard to find a more shining example of the kindness of David than we have in this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Zeba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul, to all, his, and to all his house. You therefore and your sons And your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and, to, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So we have here a story about David's kindness. David, David's kindness to a man named uh, Mephibosheth, to appreciate the kindness of David, we have to try to enter a little bit into the mind of Mephibosheth before this. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. Mephibosheth could probably remember. It appears he was already a grown man. He already had one child. David was probably only king at this time for maybe 10 to 20 years. So certainly Mephibosheth would have remembered his grandfather Saul being the king. And the problem is that his grandfather Saul tried to kill David, and keep David from becoming king. And then, even after Saul died, there was a son of Saul that again tried to set himself against David. And so for for himself, being a descendant of Saul, now that David was the king of all Israel, was not a good thing. He was connected to a name that should be hated by David. And so he can expect nothing good from David. And in fact, he calls himself here, when he comes before David, he said, you know, what is your servant that you should look upon him? Is uh, uh, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? This was truly the opinion of himself. He was like a dead dog. He was absolutely uh, useless, negative thing that nobody would have any interest here. And yet, uh, it's interesting here. We we might talk a little bit about the names. A lot of times, there's something in the Hebrew name that captures a little bit of the thought of the person or what's happening behind it. Mephibosheth literally means from the mouth of shame. And to try to capture what that might mean here, we have an expression from the mouth of lions. When somebody is being saved from from a great danger, you might say he was saved from the mouth of lions. He was as good as dead. The lions were going to have him and here somebody comes and he saves him. And that's what happened to Mephibosheth. He was, if you would, in the mouth of shame. He was looking at a life of, of shame, of uh, loneliness, of fear, of poverty, of destitution. And David comes to him and basically rescues him out of such a life and brings him to himself. And David, first of all, gives him riches. He tells him everything that used to belong to Saul, which should have been a great estate, because Saul was king for I don't know how many years, and you could imagine Saul would have been adding to his estate during his kingship, and all of that now goes to Mephibosheth. Instead of a a poverty-stricken man, he would be a very wealthy man at this point, uh, and, and not only that, as, as great as that is, he gives him all the servants to work his land. He doesn't have to start going and hire people. Here is Zeba, a man that already seems to have some amount of, uh, of authority, wealth, and power. He's being put as a servant under Mephibosheth, and he has uh, 15 sons or 20 servants or both, and all of these are now the servants of Mephibosheth. He has all these people to work his land and bring him all this wealth, but not just that. And this is really what what shocks me about this passage. If you look at verse 11, it says, as, at the end of verse 11, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Uh, sometime uh, people will show us kindness. They'll have us over to their house. And I appreciate it when they have us over and talk to us, the chance to talk to them. Well, Mephibosheth was invited to David's house every day of his life. He was welcome, just like one of the king's sons. Every day Mephibosheth would sit over there next to David or on the same table with David and, and they could chat and talk about things. Uh, if there's something Mephibosheth need, he, that's the most powerful man in the kingdom, if not in all the lands of that day. And he can ask him right there and receive for him. And, and we look at this, at this uh, great kindness that David is showing Mephibosheth and it's hard, but not to see the kindness of God toward us. Because here we were spiritually destitute, owing to God for our sins, needing to pay the wages of death. I mentioned that there was some more in the names. Uh, Mephibosheth was in the house of Machir, Machir, which literally means a price. And a price that we owed, we talked about it in the breaking of bread, we owed God for our sins. We deserve the shame for our sins and hell. And yet, God comes and He pushes us out of it. And He bestows upon us all the riches of His grace. It says that we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has bestowed it on us. And not just that, if not this is included as part of it, God takes us into Himself and says right here, you will be with me all this time. We're really, our most precious gift is a continual presence with God. He's literally always at our disposal. We can pray to him, we can speak to him, we can worship him, we can be with him every moment of our life here below. And of course, we're looking forward to going in heaven and see him face to face. That's, that's the kindness of God toward us. And uh, you might wonder, well, why is there such a similarity here? It's amazing. We look into the Old Testament and we see such a picture of us. Well, it's not amazing at all, because if you look at what David is doing here, David explains exactly what he is doing In verse 3, Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? David is deliberately trying to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. He took Mephibosheth, he knew Mephibosheth didn't deserve anything, but David thinks of the kindness of God and David knows the kindness of God not from reading the New Testament because he didn't have it. He experienced it. He was a lowly shepherd. He was a sinner too. He, he knew that. He said, in sin my mother conceived me. And yet God took him, a lowly shepherd, a sinner, and raised him to be the great king over Israel, the greatest king of all the lands. And then he comes and continues to pour blessings upon him and he says, your house will, be, will rule over Israel forever. He really makes promises to him that are just so abundant that David says, you know, what is? Who am I that you should even look upon me, Lord? David has experienced the very same thing that he is now showing to Mephibosheth. He's really following God's own example in his life and showing kindness to Mephibosheth. Don gave us a challenge a week ago, or a couple of weeks ago, to show kindness to others. Seeing the kindness in David's life. And really the way this works is the same as it was in David's case. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What David was doing, he was doing nothing short of exhibiting the character of God in his own life. He saw what God was like and he was becoming more like God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to do the same thing he saw God doing. And that's the same thing that should be happening in our life. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord literally means his character, what the Lord is like. When Moses told God, show me your glory, I pray you, what did God do? He took Moses, he put him in a cleft of a rock, covered him with his hand, and passed by and said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in mercy and truth, he was revealing his character to Moses. Moses didn't really see anything. He just got to hear what the Lord is like. That is the glory of the Lord. And as we behold the Lord, the glory of the Lord, as we learn to be, come to learn to see what the Lord is like, that's how we ourselves are being transformed into His likeness. We desire like David to become more like Him. We see His kindness. And we desire to be kind. We show kindness to other people. It's a work that God does in us, but He does it through us learning Him, getting to know Him, that's what gives us the desire to also be kind and show kindness and all the other wonderful characteristics of God in our life. Alright, so that's about King David and Mephibosheth. Uh, this was, in my opinion, the brightest moment in David's life. As he was really revealing the Lord through his action to Mephibosheth. We're now going to turn into the darkest moment in David's life. Don uh when he uh me and Don talked about it shortly he, he said that this is the time when the music died. Well that's because Don's a musician and so he, he thinks in terms of music. And of course David was too. To me it's the it's the point where the light died. That's because I'm uh an LED engineer. I, I work with lights <laughs> so I develop lights. But uh really it's 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 really is a very dark time in David's life. But we need to remember that uh God records everything here for our good, and in fact, that's why we're going through this series. We were told in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the world are come, they're really they're written for our learning. So, it's a dark time of King David. It's it's uh, the episode of King David and Bathsheba. But it's recorded for us to learn from. We're not here to somehow uh, try to uh, look uh, down on King David. King David was a wonderful man. And in fact, there's very few in the scriptures that are spoken of as highly by God as King David. And in some way, it might be an encouragement to us, if we see seen King David here, something we see of ourselves too. And really, it's to show us, no, no matter how spiritual we might be, how... How much God might bless us. How much, uh, we grow in our faith. We can fall. We can fall. Like David fell here. And maybe it'll be an encouragement if we have fallen that we can fall and get up. And st- still be someone that God can speak highly of. Someone that God can enjoy. With that, let's turn and see what we can learn from this episode in David's life. We'll go to chapter 10, 2 Sam- Samuel chapter 10. We'll start at verse 17. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. And struck Shobach, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadad saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Now it came to pass in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him And all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Uriah, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed for her impurity, and she returned to her house. There we have it. We see the sin of David and how he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, taking advantage of his position as king over Israel, and the most powerful man in all the lands, taking advantage of that to committed adultery with Bathsheba. What led to this sin? What can we find here that might have uh, helped David fall? Well, in the context we have, which is why I started in chapter 10, we're really uh, seeing David achieve uh, the apex of his glory as king. Uh, This was a a war he didn't really want that he was involved with. He, He conquered all of the land of Israel, the historically where, where the Jews dwelt. There might have been a little bit left as far as what God promised the kingdom of Israel. But as far as uh, the areas where Jews dwelt, it was now all free. They were before sl- enslaved under the Philistines and maybe other people. And David has become king. He defeated all of Israel's enemies. They were all free. Well, David uh, was trying to show kindness to a foreign king uh, whose father died, and he, the king of, of Ammon. And he sent messengers to him to express his condolences. And that king said, well, you know, David, or the advisor to the king said, well, David is really just sending them as spies. He want to conquer us too. And so he treats David's messengers very shamefully. And so David obviously is not really happy about it. Well, the next thing that happens, the king of Ammon hears that David is not so happy about him. And he's afraid, well, you know, David's going to come here with his army. I better hire some foreign troops to help me. He hires some foreign troops to help him. calls the king of Syria to help him which actually was an empire at that time. They had other kings serving them. And they came to his help, and David comes, uh, or or, uh, his army comes, and defeats them. And they're getting really upset, and now they're gathering a greater army, and they're coming to uh, once again uh, to to Ammon to fight against David. And now David responds, as we see in verse 17. He gathers all Israel, crosses over, defeats them with, with a great victory, and literally, he now possesses a much greater territory. It says all the kings that were subject to uh, the Syrians have now made peace with Israel and agreed to serve Israel. He just expanded his kingdom to a much greater position than he ever was before. He now has a whole bunch of other kingdoms that are subjected to him as the king of Israel. Great victory, great position for David. Well, what's the problem with that? I think of a verse that, uh, that uh, Paul... Paul says, something that Paul says, he says this, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul said. When I am weak, then I am strong. If you're familiar with the context of this chapter, David is there uh, sharing about uh, himself as being an apostle, and he says he was suffering suffering uh, from some uh, a physical malady that came upon him from Satan. And it was really bothering Paul. And so he cried out to the Lord three times, Lord, deliver me from this sickness or whatever it was that was bothering Paul. And the Lord said, it's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. And what Paul is saying here that he learned through that is that when he was weak, when there was something that was bringing Paul to his knees, then he was strong. Because you know what he would do? He would stop relying on, him, on himself. And he would just rely on the Lord. And so he was strong because the Lord is strong. So when we rely on the Lord, we're strong. Well, the corollary of that is when I am strong, then I am weak. Because all of a sudden I'm relying on myself. I'm doing pretty good. David was doing pretty good. He had no more enemies. He defeated them all. All the surrounding kingdoms were subject to him. He had small war going on in Moab. He was still in the process of destroying the remnant of that kingdom. But he didn't feel he needed any more help. Before when Saul was persecuting him and chasing him, and he was in a cave, he was ready to die, he called upon the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. But now when he's sitting on the throne of Israel with all the surrounding kingdoms subjected to him, he doesn't need the Lord. Now he wouldn't say it, but that's what was in his heart. And we see it in this passage, because not once does he call upon the Lord. He's, He's in a lot more trouble here than he ever has been before, but he's not calling upon the Lord once, because he thinks he's okay. He's, he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in himself. So that's number one. So as I'm going here, we're, we're trying to learn what led to this sin of David. And I listed four things that David did which we shouldn't do. And one thing David didn't do which we should do. Well, this is one of the things we shouldn't do. We shouldn't be strong. We shouldn't trust in ourselves. We need to learn to trust in the Lord, even in the good Number two, and we see this in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now it came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It really emphasizes it twice in the same verse. David had a job to do. Yes, maybe it was a small job. Yes, he conquered all the lands and there was just one little kingdom that needed to be dealt with at this time. But David doesn't do it himself. He sent Joab to take care of them. Joab, you go. I, I'm comfortable here in Jerusalem. I don't want to be out on the field of battle, you know, sleeping in a tent again, trying to put my armor and my sword on and go out to, to battle. You know, I might, might get hurt. I'll stay here, Job. You go take care of this. This, one, this one's an easy one. This one doesn't require my effort. Well, that's one thing David did that he shouldn't do. I, I know it really for my own life. Uh, I, I'll be honest. There usually comes a time when I'm pre- preparing to preach that I wish that I wasn't online this Sunday to have to preach. Because it's work. And, and there might be other pains or, or, or concerns associated. What will people think of me? What if my sermon doesn't turn out so well? And, and I would tend to shy away from it in my flesh. My flesh doesn't like it. And yet I've learned, if I have nothing to do, if I have no particular ministry for the Lord, I don't have to prepare for a Bible study or a, a message or have some other uh, ministry that I'm involved with, I'm very likely to stumble into sin. I've seen it again and again in my own life. I need to be busy about the Lord's work. Or I will sin against Him. That's simple. And uh, not everybody perhaps uh, needs to be preaching or teaching a Bible study, but each one of us has been given gifts by God to use for His glory to serve Him. Each of us has ways we can be busy about serving God. And that's a critical part of our Christian help, is to be involved in ministry, to serve the Lord in in some way that he gives us to serve him. So that was number two, the danger of idleness. It says, idle hands are the tools of the devil. And that's true. Number three, we see here in verse two, it says, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. What are you doing, David, beholding a woman that's washing herself? There's a verse in Job. He says this, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a young woman? He recognized, Job recognized, that he had a tendency to stumble into lust. So if he would see a young woman, maybe particularly if she wasn't dressed uh, too... To discreetly, he just wouldn't look. He would turn his eyes, look the other way, because he knew he tended to stumble into that sin. I uh, I work with uh, other people, and, and sometimes in the conversation, things come up. People might talk about things that are not quite appropriate, and, and I was with a couple of my co-workers. Uh, we had uh, regular meetings for a few uh, days, trying to come up with a design for a new facility that we're moving into in Santa Clara. And uh, they would often talk about looking at women. And one of them at some point uh, said something like, "Noah, how come you're so quiet when we're talking about these things? And I said, well, the Lord Jesus said that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're committing adultery with her. And uh, that just hit him like, uh, forget what you call it, you know, stick between your eyes. I mean, they were like, started blaming each other for causing each other to sin and to commit adultery. <laughs> It's funny. But uh, the reality is people generally don't think that it's wrong to lust with the rights. They think it's fine. And that's why uh, there's more money spent on pornography every year than all the money that's spent on all the movies in Hollywood. you believe that? There's more money being spent on pornography. Why? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, people have a problem with lust, but it's, it's because they think it's okay. It's okay. There's some limit. you know. They, they say, well, you can't do it if they're under a certain age, and maybe there's some other restriction, but by and large, it's accepted in our society. There's nothing wrong with, with just looking. Now, if you go beyond looking, and if you, if you if you're, if you're, can be accused of certain crimes, well, then they'll stop you. That's when the police, time will step in and have to do something about it. But as long as you're just looking, it's somehow fine. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said this, He said, "For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, and blasphemies." What I mean by that is, it's not what's on the outside only that is a problem; it's what's on the inside. And what Jesus was saying, evil really starts on the inside. It's what comes out of your heart that's the evil things. And yes, sometimes it makes it to the outside as it did here in this case of David. It, it made it to the outside. David ended up committing this sin with Bathsheba. Well, it really started on the inside. If David would have dealt with it on the inside and started saying, wait a second, this is a problem, this shouldn't be here, and he would have turned away and stopped watching her and maybe gone to his room and repent before the Lord, this would have been the end of David's sin. We wouldn't continue here a couple more chapters into it with all the consequence of chapters that will follow this event. It could have stopped here. David could have recognized this was sin, and stopped at that point, but he didn't. He didn't stop there. Um, just to make sure I'm not just picking on, you know, the men here. Which commandment did David break when he lusted after Bathsheba? The the commandment that says, "Thou shalt not lust after women." Right. Thou shalt not covet. Is it just your neighbor's wife you shouldn't covet? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things listed. You shouldn't be coveting your neighbor's house. Not his car, not his job, not his bank account. There's a lot of other things we shouldn't be coveting. And they're all just as serious a sin before God when we're coveting after these other things. Listen listen to what the Bible says. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not just coveting for your neighbor's wife that's an issue. It's coveting for anything else that's an issue. He says, be content with such things as you have. Why should we be content? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If we have God, what else do we need? What else do we need? Let's be satisfied with that. Be content with such things as you have. Let's pick up here in verse 5. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, and he said, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your own house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Then in the morning it was so that David wrote a letter to Job and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter, saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it happened, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. (coughs) Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling the matters of war to the king, if it happened that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech the, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone from him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Job had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the man prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Job, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord's. We have here the fourth thing that David does which uh, shouldn't have been done and contributed to what happened. And that really is that of hiding his sin. He was trying to cover up for his sin. God is here clearly in the business of exposing David's sin. What's the chance that Bathsheba would bear a child after this one night stand? Not not very high at all. And then there's uh, Uriah. I tried to look at what Uriah says to David and not recognize God's really trying to pierce David's heart and show him his sin as he's trying to get Uriah to go and enjoy the comforts of home. and Uriah said, "Hey, I'm not doing that. Look, they, all Israel and Judah and the ark, they're in the field they're fighting the battles of God. they're in discomfort. Who am I that should go and enjoy things? I need to be involved in what's happening. Well that's what David should have been doing, and he wasn't. It was like God pointing at David and saying, David, what are you doing? What are you doing yet? David is trying to hide it, which results... Uh, let me, let me uh, try to step back and, and point out all the problems with really trying to hide our sins. God is in the business of exposing our sin, and it's for a good reason. For two things. One, it's for, for his glory to expose them, because it will be for the shame of God to hide sin. He reveals, he exposes what happens. And the second is really it's for our good. When David sinned against God, his fellowship with God was broken. I think that's what Don made meant when the music died. There's no psalms written during this period. There'll be a psalm written nine months from now, when Nathan will finally confront David about this issue. But there was a whole period here with no psalm. Nothing written by David, the psalmist of Israel. Why? Because his fellowship with, with God was broken. There wasn't anything good that could come out of David in this time. And David, God wants to restore that relationship with David. And that's why he's trying to make David convicted or bring his sin before him so David will repent and the fellowship could be restored. But David is trying to hide it. So let me try to list the thing. Number one reason not to hide our sin, first of all, it's not going to work. God's going to bring it out. It says your sin will find you out. God, God will, It's either going to be now or it's going to be before the great white throne in heaven when the books will be open, and God will read out of the books everything that people have done. I think uh, Bill had this phrase. He said, A secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. You cannot hide your sin. That's one reason against hiding our sin. Second reason is, as I said, there is forgiveness with God. The reason God is trying to expose our sins is really to restore us into fellowship with himself. The Bible says, That he is just and faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he faithful? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died for your sins. We talked about it this morning. The work is done. Everything needed to restore you to God has been presented. The price has been paid. But as long as you try to hide your sin, you're separated from all that treasure of a grace available from God. It's only when we confess our sin, we come before God and we agree with Him about our sin, that all of a sudden the channel of grace is open. and We can receive it and be forgiven and restored into fellowship with God. It's to our advantage to come before God and confess our sin, lay it out, agree what we've done before Him. That's when we can receive His forgiveness. The third reason, <coughs> which really captures the rest of this chapter, is when we try to hide our sin, we will inevitably sin more. And the first sin is 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 that of hypocrisy. We're pretending we haven't sinned. And really, this whole chapter is really full with David's hypocrisy. I was trying to emphasize it a little bit with my words, but he sends Uriah, and he's talking to him as if he wants to know what's really going on. Is that what he's interested in? No, he wants to have Uriah go and be at home with his wife so it looks like the child belongs to Uriah and not to him. He doesn't care about the war. I mean, he probably cares a little bit, but that's not what on his, what's on his mind when he's talking to Uriah. He sends a gift after Uriah. Uh, I mean, this whole exchange here uh, with Job later on, with the messenger, I mean, it's nothing but hypocrisy, trying to hide the sin of what David has been doing. Uh, we, we could really go through a list of bad things that happened here, uh, trying to get Uriah drunk, to, to weaken his convictions against doing what Uriah knew was wrong to do. Uh, other people were killed with Uriah, but really, ultimately, it was the murder of Uriah. He, he decided, well, rather than having my sin discovered, I prefer this man dies. I prefer this man dies. And uh, it's, it's really the, ultimately the result of when we're trying to hide our sin, we're really thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about others. And that's what David is doing here. He's not thinking about others. And he had the power. A lot of things that David do uh, is doing here... They will say, oh, we would never do anything like that. Well, yes, maybe I have a problem with lust, but you know, I'll never actually commit adultery with anybody's wife. Well, I might have anger towards someone, or I may be trying to hide my sin, but I'll never actually kill somebody about it. Well, the only difference between you and David is David had the power. David could simply say the word, and it would happen. If you could say the word, and it would happen, you would be doing the same thing David is. If you're allowing it to be in your heart, it's just the next step, the next natural step for you to actually be doing it. It's really the fear of, of people like Tom that keeps us from doing a lot of things. Uh, Tom is a policeman, not as a brother. It, the police would, would, is, is really what's restraining people from doing a lot worse things than people are actually doing. They're afraid of the consequences of what will happen. Well, David had nobody to fear. He was the most powerful man in Israel in, and in all the lands. He was number one. Nobody could touch him. He could do whatever he wanted. And so... The sin of the heart, in the, this case in David, manifested them in adultery and in murder. The same thing would happen to us if we were in David's place. If we allowed these things to be in our hearts. Well, <coughs> So that's a, the fourth thing that we shouldn't do. We shouldn't try to hide our sin. Uh, one thing that David should be doing and wasn't doing, that was the last contribution to this sin. And, and we'll look at uh, the next chapter. I'm just going to steal a couple of verses and that's okay because I'm stealing them for myself. It says in chapter 12 in verse 9 Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The word I'm thinking of here is despised. You know what despise means? So the Lord's accusing David of despising him. You know what despise means? It literally means to think little of. Think little of. His estimation of God was low at the time. But he didn't come because David had some sort of a change of mind. You know, I used to think God was great, but I think he's really not that great now, so I'm going to go ahead and start sinning. It was literally his thinking little of God that resulted in this thing. He wasn't thinking about God. God wasn't in his meditation. Let me turn you to a verse. one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and verse starting at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and those who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Can everybody see what's on my finger here? I have a ring. What kind of a ring? It's a diamond ring, right. I have a diamond on my finger. I asked my wife if I could borrow it for the message. She she had a hard time, but eventually she gave it to me. <laughs> so um, um, I appreciate it. And I picked it because this passage talks about jewels. Uh, if you were to go to buy jewels, me and my wife, uh, Shortly before I engaged, and we already talked about it, we knew we were going to get engaged. All that was left is really the proposing. But for the proposing, you need the ring, and I was smart enough not to pick the ring on my, by myself. I figured <laughs> <laughs> I'll take my wife with me for this one. And so we go to a jewelry store and uh, start showing us different diamonds. And they start showing you the differences between different diamonds. How some diamonds, uh, you know, they look the same size, but they really look better, and of course they cost more. And uh, if you were to then take that diamond and walk out the door, all of a sudden it doesn't look as pretty. It doesn't look as pretty as it looked in the door, inside the store. Do you know why? The lights, exactly. It has to do with the lighting. In the jewelry store, they know just the right lights to put there. And usually it's a lot of lights. They have a lot of little lights, give you good illumination from a lot of different sources. And that's really what gives the diamond its beauty. When I proposed to my wife, it was actually kind of dark outside. But really, there was no beauty. She wouldn't have been able to tell if I switched this for some sandstone or something like that. But it was dark. Right. But you couldn't, you couldn't see. What, what I'm trying to say is the beauty of a gem or a jewel is not in itself. It's in the light. All that this does is It takes the light that's around here, it reflects it in certain ways, it refracts it in certain ways, it absorbs certain wavelengths, and what, what the result is beautiful. But it comes from the light. It's the light that's actually beautiful. All this does is it reveals different aspects of the light that I couldn't see before. It might show certain colors. I can't see with my eyes, I can't see the different colors. I look at this and, and, well, this lighting here is not great. But if I do it outside or a place with good light, I'll really see different colors shining in it. It breaks up the light into its different colors of element. It shows the beauty of it. Well, the Lord here is talking about us. And He says in verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. Do you know that you are a jewel? I didn't say it. It's the Bible. If I said it, you know, don't believe me. But the Bible says, if you know the Lord Jesus, you are a jewel. You are something that God is using to reveal His glory. Just like this diamond or other gems reveal the beauty that's in life, you are being used to reveal the beauties of God. And that's what David did in the episode with Mephibosheth. David was seeing God. And then God, as he was appreciating God, God used him to reveal his beauties in how he treated Mephibosheth. And God wants to do the same thing with you and me. You know, the moment that we stop looking at God, we stop being beautiful for God. The moment I I cover this and this diamond will not see any light, it stops being beautiful. Not any more beautiful than a sandstone. The same thing happens to us. As David here was really not meditating upon God. And that's what this verse says. It's those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. Really it means his character when it says his name. It's those that meditate upon God and his character. Who come here perhaps as we did this morning to think about the Lord and what he did for us. That the Lord can then really make us into beautiful jewels. That's how he can shine through us as we come and meditate upon him. That's when the beauties of God can actually manifest themselves in our life. And that's the one thing David wasn't doing that we should be doing. If we don't want to sin, we want to reveal the glory of God in our life, it comes from meditating upon his name, reading his word, coming to worship him, talking about him with other people. That's really the source. We want to be beautiful to God as he wants us to be. He, He wants to make us his jewel. That comes as we meditate upon him. I want to be a jewel. How about you? Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your love to us. We confess as David did. Lord, uh, in, in, in sin we were conceived. There's, there's nothing in and of ourselves that is beautiful. But Lord, you're the one who picked us up. You're the one who saved us and showered upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And brought us to be with yourself. And desire... To make us your jewel. Make us a beautiful object that reveal your glory. Lord, we confess that's what we want to do. Help us do what we need to do. Take uh, the lessons that you give us in this passage and in other passages to uh, stop ourselves from sinning. And mostly, Lord, help us come to know you more. That we might reflect, refract, absorb, and show the world your glory all the more. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.